Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. This episode was recorded on October 7, 2021. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's podcast. For those who have not heard from us in a few weeks, we've scaled back our podcast episodes to roughly once a month rather than our weekly schedule. We continue to record and release these podcasts, just not on a weekly schedule. And now, on to our current episode. So now we're talking with David Houle. If you've been listening to our podcast for any time, you might recognize David as a previous guest. In fact, he was on our show on May 10th of 2020. But, you know, so much has happened since that time. And it actually seems like a decade has passed, honestly. So David is a futurist, and you might ask yourself, well, what is a futurist? Well, a futurist is someone who thinks and writes and speaks about the future, whose job it is to be a catalyst to get people and companies and markets and governments to think about the future and then facilitate conversations about it and address their concerns and issues over what might happen. David's first book, called The Shift Age, was published in, originally in 2007, the book proposes that we are entering a time of transformation, along with it, and along with that transformation comes change, change that offers both great risk but also incredible opportunity. Overall, we don't have much choice about it because, you know, life is change, and we're all better off if we accept change and, and seek to find those new opportunities. Well, it's much easier said than done, though, so it's good that we have people like David who can help shine a light on the path forward. David is now writing a series of short books focused on what he calls the most disruptive decade in our lifetimes, the 2020s. We're living in it right now, and it's already off to an exciting start. Well, not thrilling, but exciting and certainly disruptive. So, David, uh, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's nice to talk with you again. So, yeah, as I mentioned before, we talked about a year and a half ago, and it, it uh, and as I also mentioned before, it seems like a decade ago. There's been so much that's been going on since then. And uh, our nation basically has lived through a tumultuous presidential election, followed by a, a historic event, uh, history in a bad way, that is, during the insurrection in January of, of, of this January 6th of this year. And I want to spend a lot of time talking about your new book series, but before we get started, can we just chisel off some of your insight as to what's currently happening in American politics and what's driving this tremendous discontent in this country? And do you see us coming out on the other side with our collective sanity still intact? Well, you know, the, the larger issue that really is the context for that question is uh, questions I got asked by CEOs in the Great Recession, which is, are we going to remain a great country? And I put it to a larger context than that is, are we watching the decline and fall of the American empire? By any stretch of the way you define the word empire, historically, America is the largest empire in history. And, you know, I think it's it's unknown. Um, since we spoke, uh, so to answer that question, I think that, um, uh, the election was pretty clear. What impressed me about the, you know, the, the news media always picks on the negative things, right? Right. And, uh, you know, so more people voted in an election where there was a pandemic going on than they ever voted before by a, by a multiple. I mean, it was just, uh, I think 2016, the, in 2012, the election totals were like, um, uh, 
120 million or something like that. And here we have like 150 million. Yeah. So what, what the story of the election for me was because the electorate who elected Biden felt that they were being challenged by making it difficult to vote, um, really showed up. It was like people said, no, you can't take that right away. And so I was really positively impressed. I, 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 of course, enjoyed the outcome. I think, you know, Trump, both as president and since he's left the office, has been very damaging to America. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the the GOP, the Republican Party, is the single, as it is currently behaving, is the greatest single threat to democracy in my lifetime in this country. I've never before had uh, one of the two parties uh outright go outright want to overthrow an election. I mean, it, 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 you know, yeah. growing up in the Cold War, it's like, well, that's what they do in Russia, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but so the election turned out really well. I thought the insurrection was horrible. And, 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 and you know, the uh, cognitive dissonance, right, is, is, is believing something. And when you get information that's contrary to that, you, um, right. you don't believe it because it, so, I'm just astounded by the lack of uh, the lack of universal acceptance of vaccines. It's a public health issue. It's the common good issue. Um, you and I are of an age. I'm, I think I'm older than you. I grew up learning all about World War II, and World War II was won on the, the factory floors of Detroit. You know, the home front won the war, yep. and here we can't even have people do two things together: wear a mask and get vaccinated. Yeah. So, so I'm mystified by that. That makes me think that the American uh, empire is declining when you have such selfishness and stupidity and not a sense of the common good. So I'm really disheartened by that yeah. no question. It truly is a case, and collectively speaking, of cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? You're, you're trying to hurt someone else by killing yourself, and this is completely unnecessary. Uh, in the early summer, when the vaccine started kicking in, the United States had the highest percent, and then every single developed country passed us by. And then you break down, and he's, you know, was well, it's, it's people of color. Well, the gap, the single greatest gap, is with Republicans. It is Republicans that are holding down the vaccination level. Yeah, and it's been documented. So I, I can't understand why one party wants to stand for ignorance, selfishness, and death. I, I just can't comprehend it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, we can get into cognitive dissonance, too, because that's actually the title of one of your books. But uh, before we do that, I want to run into um, another book, because you actually started this series, and the last time we talked, which was May of last year, uh, you were starting a series on the 2020s, which you call the most disruptive in history. In fact, that was the title of your book, The 2020s, The Most Disruptive in History. And I just want to say on a side note to everybody listening out there, uh, take a look at these books in this series because there's a couple of advantages here. Uh, you can go on Amazon and get these books on, on Kindle for like just a few dollars. Uh, and if you want a hard copy, it's a few dollars more. But these are very easy to read. Uh, David, you did a wonderful job. You wrote in a very uh, plain language sort of way, but you packed it with lots of great research. And so, you know, you can just, you can take one chapter at a time in one sitting and like, you know, five or 10 minutes, you're done with that chapter and you're all the wiser for it. So definitely everybody check out the books, uh, the 2020s, the most disruptive decade in history and all the other books that are going to be following that series. 
so before we get started in talking about these books, uh, and I know this is a topic of your whole book, so I'm going to try to have you summarize it in like, you know, 100 words or less. But why do you call it the most disruptive decade in history? So, so Dan, it, you know, it was back around 2017. And I started, you know, I started realizing that when I was getting asked questions, what's it going to look like in the 2030s and 2040s? My answer was fairly consistent that um, it's how humanity navigates the 2020s that will determine that. And that's because of a lot of the major trends and dynamics I was looking at that are shaping our future, our present and our future, are all going to come together in this decade. Um, so, you know, how, how humanity uh, changes its way in relationship to the planet, because clearly that's a key issue. How, how we decide to grow what most people call artificial intelligence, and I call it technological intelligence. In other words, how do we create the future we want with the next big technology rather than having it done unto us? And then there's the, re there's the reinvention of capitalism and democracy, both of which were initially invented in the 1700s and needed, need to be rebooted for the current reality today. Uh, so, so basically, um, you know, you commented on the length of the books and the ease of the read. I've been called a CEO's futurist because I've spoken to advise more than 4,000. I've done a lot of corporate retreats. So I write to an audience that likes to lead, take action, um, thought leaders, business leaders. And what I've learned from them consistently is, you know, we all live in a short attention span theater. So uh, people have... So this first book, I think, was like 110 pages, and the second book around the same. In the third book I'm writing, we talk about uh, a little bit longer. So, you know, I go into writing a book, 10, page, 10 chapters, 100 pages, inexpensively priced, you can read in half a day. And the feedback I've gotten has been overwhelmingly positive about the content, but particularly about, David, I appreciated the fact that I could sit down and in half a day, I could really change how I think about the future. And the, the, the reason that these that I'm staying on that is that these books, Dan, are as a futurist, I tend to write about stuff out in the future, but because it's it is such a disruptive time, the future is being created in the present. And and so these books can be immediately practical for people running anything or deciding what to do um, in this mm -hmm. decade. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, one of the one of the concepts you brought out. And I, I know that last time we talked on the podcast, you had a couple of quotes there. And I saw these quotes pop out in the very beginning of this book, which was very exciting for me because I thought, oh, I've I've already talked to David about this. So I feel like I can hear your voice in it. And one of them was from a uh, from Miguel de Unamuno, I think his name is. He's a Spanish yes. writer and, and poet. He wrote, quote, we should try to be the parents of our future rather than the offspring of our past. And, you know, when you laid that line on me uh, about a year and a half ago, I spent several days thinking about that. It was a really thought-provoking thing. Another one was from Alvin Toffler, which I think is per perhaps pertinent to a book we'll talk about shortly about cognitive dissonance. And uh, this quote says, quote, uh, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those that cannot read or write it will be those that cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And this really describes, I think, what you're talking about in terms of what's happening in the 2020s right now. We're all having to retool ourselves 
not only technologically, but politically as, a, as the uh, demographics shift, uh, families shift, uh, travel, everything is changing. It's a scary time, right? And, and to talk about one thing, you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned age of intelligence. Uh, I think in one of your chapters is called The Beginning of the Age of Intelligence. And you conclude the chapter by talking about the symbiosis between humans and what you call technological intelligence, uh, another word for artificial intelligence, but you have a better reason for calling it technical intelligence or techno yeah, technological intelligence. So anyways, this gets at what a lot of people fear. I mean, too many people have watched Terminator movies and fear that these intelligent machines are going to rise up and consider humans a parasite. Personally, I don't have that much fear of it. I've been in computers pretty much my whole life, but maybe I'm being a, li a little naive too. I don't know. So can you speak to this particular fear about technological intelligence? Yeah, um, it's one of the reasons I call it technological intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. Um, I've been following it for a long time, obviously being a futurist and read a lot of science fiction and everything, but it really wasn't until 2016 when the, um, the artificial intelligence of Google called the uh, AlphaGo played and beat the greatest Go champion in the world. And the, the significance of that was Go is a highly intuitive sport, unlike uh, chess, which is computational. So, so I started getting into it. And, and so I looked up the word artificial, right? And I worked up, looked up the word intelligence in four dictionaries. And I quote dictionary.com in the book, not one dictionary under the definition of intelligence uses the word human. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. whales are intelligent. Dolphins are intelligent. Some people say their pets are intelligent. So intelligence exists outside humans. So why do we call technological intelligence artificial? And the, the reason to your point, if it's artificial, it's not real. Right. There isn't anything in your life that is that's artificial. It's better than real, except, you know, I always like to say, you know, in the 90s, I went skiing at a ski resort in Colorado and it hadn't snowed, but they had artificial snow. So that was a good thing. Other than that, aspect, so, so using the term artificial, I think in some subliminal way, sublinguistic way, makes it negative because it's not us. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a very anthrop anthropocentric way to look at something other than us. Just like that's why we're in the climate change problem, because it's all about us, not about us integration. So, so I am optimistic that we can navigate our way through this. But my responsibility um, is, to, is to make people aware that could go either way. So I am much the, um, since we spoke, um, and you know, your listeners can look at this, um, I helped along with two other global futures launch something called the Fork in the Road Project. The concept being that we stand as Fuller said, utopia or oblivion. He wrote this 50 years ago, our book, Mr. Fuller. So, you know, we're hurtling mindlessly, stupidly, unconsciously down the pathway, down the road to oblivion, and we need to get on the road of the future we want to create. And that's really my mission in life is to make sure that people understand we only have this decade to make very significant decisions. I know I'm going off the topic of your question, but, but to come back to it, so technological intelligence is the next thing uh, technologically. In other words, in 2020, 
in 2020, uh, humanity created 35, uh, um, um, 35 zettabytes of data. A zettabyte is a billion terabytes. And by 2040, we're going to have 12,000. So right at the time we're having the greatest information explosion in history, we've created a technology to help us navigate it. Wow. So I think that the future of human evolution is going to be the pairing of humanity and technological intelligence. Wow. So you also talked in this book in one of the subsequent chapters, and, and you touched upon it just now with climate change. And I think that most people now are saying, even the skeptics that were saying that we're trying to deny climate change are now coming back and, and they're, they're instead of asking, you know, is it real? Or they're asking, you know, what can we do about it? And you tie climate change slash global warming back into the concept of capitalism. And in a way, it really made me think about the ties between capitalism and global warming as put forth in the Green New Deal. And I never, I have to honest, be honest with you, I never quite understood the Green New Deal in the sense that they tie together things like collective bargaining, indigenous rights, uh, things that seem to be unrelated to its ostensible purpose. But, uh, but there, is, there is kind of a tie there. So um, anyways, I, you had a quote in here from Ray Dalio, chairman of, uh, and founder of Bridgewater Associates, that said, I believe all good things can be taken to an, all good things that are taken to an extreme can be self-destructive and that everything must evolve or die, then now, now it's, that is true for capitalism as well. I think I didn't quote that accurately, but I think that was the, the, the gist of it. So can you go over some of your recommended courses of action in terms of climate change to prepare us for 2030? Well, you got an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, relating it to the capitalism part of your question, um, Capitalism has never accounted for externalities. It's never accounted for the water, the air, or anything that, that it uses. And it's never had to account, cost account for the, the greenhouse gas emissions that are put up, right? Mm -hmm. So number one, human, humans are the only species on the planet that creates waste. And, and capitalism is about creating waste. Capitalism is a linear um economy in the sense that that something is extracted produced uh, shipped sold consumed discarded repeat mm -hmm. uh, the circular economy is one where you reduce reuse recycle some of it but the, the book i wrote in 2019 uh, moving to a finite earth economy crew manuals about we have to move to a finite earth economy because endless growth on a finite planet is Insanity. Sustainable. Yeah. So, so, so for capitalism, I realize capital. You can't fight capitalism, and and so capitalism has created more material wealth and well-being than anything else in human history. Over the last two hundred years, it's created. You know, the middle class today lives better than the aristocracy lived three hundred years ago. So, mm -hmm. so, but what is wrong with capitalism? It doesn't account for the externalities, and it's based on carbon. So. History tells us if you want to get rid of something, you tax it. Like, you know, smoking, we knew it was going to kill us, didn't cause a drop in smoking. But once we started taxing it, smoking went down. Seatbelts, we all knew that it was safer to wear them, but we didn't all wear them until it's the law. So mm -hmm. in that book, 
we talk about um, what if we tax their carbon footprint? So you wouldn't pay any income tax, Dan. You would pay tax on your carbon footprint. So you have a big house, you have two or three big cars, you're going to pay a lot more tax than somebody else. And what are you going to try to do? Cut your taxes. So how do you cut your taxes? You'll buy an EV, an electric vehicle, or you'll invest in you'll invest in a company that's doing carbon capture, or you'll pay to have a bunch of trees implanted or whatever. So the point is, if we start taxing what we want to decrease carbon, you can end up having more money generated, and it's much more equitable because the the more the wealthier you are, the larger your carbon footprint, almost by definition, because you've got multiple cars, multiple houses, planes, and boats and stuff like that. So it's much more equitable. Uh, the average American puts up 16 tons of CO2 every year. The average in the world is four tons, and that includes us. So in capitalism, what if all the developed countries started taxing their citizens and any company and any nonprofit and any church and any school on the fifth ton? Mm -hmm. And then it keeps going up. So if you've got a 30 ton footprint, you're going to pay a lot more taxes than if you don't. If you, if you have an EV, if you live in a small home, you know, if you have solar, whatever. So, so the point is, is that capitalism, the greatest engine of economic wealth and material well-being in human history should be used to face the climate crisis. Okay. Too many people think of it as opposition. And it is an opposition the way it's constructed. So by reinventing it, by redesigning it, we can make it very pro-regenerative. We can make it very, uh, you know, the wealth inequality in capitalism today is, is, is greater than it has ever been before. And, and you know the stats and I know the stats. Anybody who reads knows the stats that since the 80s, you know, the, the wealth at the upper 1% has increased. Um, it's gone from 9% to 24% of the total wealth of the population, right? So, so, and what COVID did even more, it, it eviscerated even more the middle class to making the working poor. So we're at a critical state for human well-being, for lack of safety. And COVID also showed the lack of a safety net and showed, you know, the, the incapacity of public health to, to, to serve its citizenry. So, so basically, capitalism needs to be reinvented so that its power can be used to face the issues, wealth inequality, climate crisis um, that, that mm -hmm. we face. Okay. Well, that kind of dovetails into the, the book that you released, I believe it was January of this year, and I believe that your, your goal is to release a book uh, every January of every year, if I'm not mistaken. That's it, right. This one's called 2021, A Look Ahead, Acceleration, Collapse, Rebound. And I'm reminded then of that of that quote that we just had with Alvin Toffler about learning, unlearning, and relearning. So, And this ties in perfectly with your discussion about the, uh, about the ecology, really. In a sense, we have to learn how to, how to, how to move things around and, and um, well, not so much move things around, but find different ways, right? So could you talk a little bit about this book, 2021, A Look Ahead, Acceleration, Collapse, Rebound? You know, it, it, the, the genesis of that was as a futurist, I realized the narrow-mindedness of Americans in particular relative to time. 
you may recall back in November, December of last year, it's like, oh, I can hardly wait for 2020 to be over. It's so bad. Yeah. And I'm kind of going, folks, you know, <laughs> the last 10 months of 2020 was about COVID. And the first 10 months of 2021 is going to be about COVID. So yeah. don't think it's going to go away. It's, it, it, it's a larger thing. You know, trends aren't defined by years, but humans like to define their lives by years, right? So the impetus of the write the book was, wait a minute, you know, 2021 is just going to be an, an amplification of mm. 2020. I mean, uh, and so I published it in January 1st. And, and then I realized, oh, I should do this every year. I mean, I sold it for 99 cents on, on Amazon, sold a lot of copies, probably because it was cheap. But people want to know about the future around January. People go, so what's this year going to be like, mm. right? So I'm going to do one each year, 2022, and come up with the words that are relative to it. But, you know, just think about what's happened since I wrote that book, right? The, the insurrection on January 6th, yeah. the, the, the use of vaccines, the, the, um, uh, the resistance right? to vaccines, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, it's basically a sub-series to the bigger overarching series of 2020's most disruptive decades. So I'm going to break it down in, on January 1st, primarily for my fans, but, you know, anybody else, they can download it, 99 cents. And I went back to it, Dan, in August to do kind of a late second half mid-year. And most of the stuff I forecast, I got right yeah, or yeah. was getting right. In other words, I said there'd be there'd be 700,000 COVID deaths back when there were 400,000, right? right? And now we've just crossed 700,000. And nobody believed that was going to be right. The one thing I got wrong that's significant was I thought that there would be Republican defections in the Senate and maybe the House over to the Democrats. And I was dead wrong on that because I didn't I didn't see the insurrection that what happened that day coming. But subsequent to that, of course, the Republicans in the denial have totally um, yeah, right. It totally, just, have uh, totally uh, it became tribal, really, in a sense. Right. right became yeah. way too tribal. And, and so I think. So the point is, is that is that um, so that's what that book is. And, and, you know, the next one will be a look into 2022 and then whatever the three adjectives are I'm going to use to describe that next year. Well, you also wrote another interim book, and this gets into what we we're just talking about with the failure of Republicans to defect as you thought they might. And also comes into what we talked about, people resisting vaccines and resisting mitigation techniques for the for the virus this book is called The 2020s, A Decade of Cognitive Dissonance. So that's a those are a couple of $20 words right there. Could you just very briefly explain what cognitive dissonance is sure. and, and what your book has to say about it? Cognitive dissonance is when you hold a belief in spite of reality telling you otherwise. So, for example, um, uh, what is reality in the last few months? What's the new workplace going to look like? Are people ever going to go back to work? So, so what, what COVID did was to disrupt reality. It's what, you know, when, when, when we went into lockdown, I lost 95% of all my revenue. So I said, you know, because I get on plane, I, I go to airports, get on planes, get on other planes, go speak to a lot of people. Well, I couldn't do that. Right. So I realized maybe I should just quit. But then I realized something, Dan, and that is, COVID gave me a great opportunity 
to persuade people to see into the future with greater depth. Normally, prior to COVID, I would have to say, I'd like you to suspend to audiences, right? I'd like you to suspend what you think reality is because you think it's fixed and it's about ready to change, right? The shift mm-hmm. age. And, and with COVID, people, hey, this isn't the reality I thought I was going to be living. So reality can't change. So where's it going to go, David, right? So, yeah. so the fact that people have been unmoored because the realities they thought were real are not the realities they're living in. That's cognitive dissonance. In other words, you're going to have to manage multiple realities um, ongoingly. You know, that, to the Toffler quote, you have to learn, unlearn, and relearn. So you have to unlearn what you thought reality was in the workplace, for example, and relearn what the new reality is. And, and so cognitive dissonance. And the interesting thing, Dan, is I put it out for a month. I like to put it out, my book's out inexpensively for like $2.99. I'll let you know when it's out. You can get it. But for $2.99, so people can buy the, the ebook for a month because then people will read it, talk about it. And also because they bought it on Amazon, Amazon will let them post reviews, right? So I do that. But it sold really well that first month. And the only thing I can conclude to that, because I don't do much else differently, was I named what people are feeling. Mm-hmm. People are feeling cognitive dissonance. In other words, I can't believe what I'm watching on TV on January 6th and the fact that it's being called a bunch of tourists by a Republican senator. That's cognitive dissonance. What do I do? You know, what do I do when uh, an entire party, the Republican Party, is not speaking the truth or is lying about something that I saw? Right. And then, of course, you have the big lie, which is I'm not going to believe that the election was real and I'm not going to believe that the insurrection was an insurrection because I want to believe something else in spite of that information, in spite of the fact that Biden's in the White House, in spite of the fact that people died on January 6th, there's there's a cognitive dissonance among a lot of people, obviously, who voted for Trump, who, who just think it didn't exist, right? Yeah. So cognitive dissonance is the dissonance one feels when one doesn't know what the reality is. And, and I'm not asking you to be a psychologist here, but what lies at the root of that? Is it just our own individual insecurities about seeing the shift, the shift in, in everything in the world and wanting to hang on to something because that's, it, it's like the enemy that you know is better, or the, the, what's that called? The enemy well, that you know is better than one you don't know sort of thing. Well, you know, I mean, we all, I, I don't want to spend my time talking about the demographics, but the demographics of this country are clear. You know, whites are going to be in the minority in the, by the 2040s, mm-hmm. right? So make America great again is let's go back to when the whites were in control and the white picket fences and suburbia worked and we understood everything and we were the ones in power. That's what that's all about. And so what you can say is the cognitive dissonance there is white people who have not done well economically as a lot of, not just them, but, you know, that's what's happened the last 40 years as we talked about kind of going, hey, I don't like this new reality. I don't like seeing people who look different than me in my neighborhood or on TV. I don't like the fact that people who are smarter than me have degrees look down on me, or I think they do. So I am going to um, not pay attention to them. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pay attention to people I don't like. 
I'm going to stand with my tribe. I'm going to, you know, it, it is. So that's the demographics. But but the real reality is um, I have realized over 15 years of doing this that people don't like change. Mm -hmm. And that's why, as I said, COVID opened up the door for me because they're living in change. So they want advice and direction, right? But I always say to people, the only constant in the universe is change. Right. If there was no change, there'd be no time. So this is a moment, a decade, a threshold from one room of the past to the developing room of the future being defined now. And not only does one have to change, and if one leads a company, change that company, but it's better to be in front of the change than to resist the change. In yeah. this 2020s, being in front of the change is very powerful because people are looking, what are we to do now? Oh, that person's doing that and it looks to be working. Let's follow that person, right? right? So right now everything's up in the air and my job is to try and give a definition to where I think it's going and help people be optimistic and positive that we can create the good future we want. Well, that's a very good answer there because I've, I've, I've wrestled in my mind. You know, I, I see the things the, the same as everybody else. And first thing, the, when the vaccines became available to me, I just rushed out and got them. And everybody I know did the same thing. But I know there's quite a few people that didn't. And the temptation is to just belittle them, look down upon them. But you know, there's there's something more, there's something deeper in there. There is that cognitive uh, cognitive um, dissonance in, in their minds and for whatever reason that's there it is there nevertheless and it's really difficult to dislodge it um, but you know, it's 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 life right it's part of what we have to deal with it's part of this changing environment we live in some people don't want to change so quickly and other people will just resist it I don't, I don't put the I don't bring change into looking at the anti-vaxxers I just bring um, the fact that they've been led astray. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it started with Trump and then it took on a life of its own. There's a reaction against elites because elites haven't done very well in the last 20 years for the economy. And I, I think that, um, I just think it shows stupidity and ignorance. At mm -hmm. the end of the day, yeah, I read something on the internet, right? Okay. Well, I've been told that, or people I know say that type right. of stuff you hear all the time. And the reality of that is, I'm sorry, you're accountable for your own actions. Yeah. You can't, you know, if you can't put it off on someone else. Yeah. Now that you know what you know, you're going to get a vaccine or not. Are you aware of the fact that 90% of the people who are hospitalized since June 1 are people who had been vaccinated? And that 98% of the people who are dying are people who haven't been vaccinated. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to take that fact into account, you're stupid. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sorry. It's just what it is. You know, I mean, these are the same people that couldn't go to first grade without getting a polio vaccine, a measles vaccine, and all these other ones. You right. know, the state of Mississippi has all these mandated state vaccines you have to have before you can go to public school. But why with COVID is this not, is this one one you're not going to take? So there's just a, there's just a, there's a, it's just not intelligent. Well, you know, it, yeah. it's, it, and I think one of the problems there is, 
and I, I, I wrote an article on Medium about this, and I know, I know that we're digressing a bit, but I wrote an article on Medium about this, which was, and you and I talked about it shortly before the show here, about what was taking place in the 1980s. There, were, uh, there was a sentiment, and it was a voice by Ronald Reagan himself, who said, the government isn't the solution to the problem, the government is the problem. And that launched a anti- uh, well, uh, launched a loss of trust in our government. And that has only been amplified over the years. Everybody said, you know, you, you, you can't trust the government. But, and what I found particularly ironic was, I don't know if you saw this video recently, Lindsey Graham giving a speech in front of a crowd of people, uh, probably about 100 people. And he's telling the people, look, you all got to get vaccinated. You need to get vaccinated. And he about got booed off the stage. I saw and, that. Yeah, I and saw I thought, that. how could these guys not see this coming? Because ever since Grover Norquist, you know, tried to shrink government down to the size he could drown it in a bathtub, what do you expect after a while when you become now the person in power? Do you think these people are suddenly going to trust you? You've groomed this mistrust over decades, and now it's coming back. And uh, so I think that that's definitely a part of it. And cognitive dissonance always looks for an excuse to not believe something. So if your excuse is, I can't trust the government, I can't trust what the CDC says or Anthony Fauci, because I've spent, you know, I've, I've been indoctrinated for decades not trusting these people, so now suddenly I'm supposed to trust them. So that gives their cognitive dissonance a place to go hide, a legitimate, what they think is a legitimate place to hide. And the reality is that we've got over 700,000 people that have passed away in this country to this date and, and over a million people in the world, and here we are. Right. And cognitive dissonance is killing people. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of like, you know, the larger framework of that is the religions define wisdom or knowledge until the uh, age of science and the Enlightenment. And, you know, um, we don't expect our children to believe in Santa Claus much after the age of seven. Right. But we expect them to believe in virgin birth, the parting of the Red Seas, um, uh, and resurrection for the rest of your life. And it means it's the same level. So, so the myths of religion um, were there before science. Um, I have a T-shirt I love to wear when I feel kind of punkish. It, it, it shows one through ten blank lines, and above it it says, all the scientific inventions proved wrong by religion. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. You know, and the point being is, once you go up to that level, uh, what is a conspiracy theory other than coming up with a way to justify reality that I don't understand? Yeah. Right? So God made everything in his image. Okay. Well, okay. Well, I mean, th that works for a time. Right. Until it doesn't work. It, it, it worked. Yeah. It worked until it was proven not to be true. Right. 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 I mean, I, you know, I mean, I always say to people, it's like, no, God yeah. didn't make us in his image. We made him in our image. Oh, yeah. It's a good a way old white guy, white beard. White beard yeah. is him, right. I mean, if God is responsible for making everything, why doesn't God look like a giraffe? <laughs> right. He made God. God made giraffes. Right. But yeah. why is it only human humanoid, right? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's so 
it's so obvious, but the point is, that's just my opinion of organized religion. Organized religion is nothing more than instituting hierarchical uh, structures of power. Yeah, yeah. Usually that's, for males, yeah, right? That's, that's, so, that's... And, and, and so QAnon, just an extension of that. Yeah. You know, uh, Big Lie, just an extension of that. Yeah. You know, so the cognitive dissonance is really, I think, the dominant feeling we're going to have for this decade. We're going to always be in a state of cognitive dissonance. We're going to have to unlearn what we thought reality was to relearn the new reality that we are starting to live in. And, and look for opportunities in that relearning. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, that's what people don't understand that, that I try to very gently and nicely and lovingly bring them to, which is in times of great change or in times of great opportunity. Yeah. Right. All the great, not all the great, but so many inventions occur when there's a lot of change going on. Yeah. Um, and 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 so, what's the opportunity here, Mr. CEO, for your company? What's the opportunity, Mr. Middle-aged uh, um, American or Ms. Middle-aged American who is unsatisfied with their life? and has now spent 18 months living in an alternative reality where they're working from home and they spend more time with their kids. It's like, why do I want to go back to the way it was? It wasn't working very well, was it? Yeah. I, think I can't tell you how many people, sorry, sorry. Yeah. How, transformation is what COVID is about. I mean, I, in, in this book, uh, A Decade of Cognitive Distance, I have a chapter named after a column I wrote, which was named after, uh, I did an NPR interview and it, they named it and it's called, uh, COVID is like a bike, bicycle with training wheels, right? Hmm. We all, either as a parent or as a child, use training wheels for a bike. Why? Learn how to pedal, learn how to brake, hand signals, stop signs, all that. And then what happens? The training wheels come off and you learn balance. Yeah. So what COVID did for us was COVID is what taught us how to be, how to maintain balance in a cognitive dissonant time. It's prepared us for the rest of the decade. You know, if, if, if you ski or scuba dive, you haven't done it for a bunch of years, somebody, oh, I haven't done scuba dive for 10 years. What will somebody say? Oh, it's just like riding a bicycle. Oh, it's just like riding a bicycle. Mm -hmm. So for the rest of the decade, it's just going to be like the disruption of COVID. Mm -hmm. So we've learned, you know, you say you're working from home. You hadn't worked from home before. You've adjusted to it. You'll like it. It's a benefit. I don't know what your future is going to be working with the company you work with, but it's up to them and to you and to negotiate it. But everything's changed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and it is that change. What is the what is the opportunity that you get? You might be able to do more podcasts. You might be able to spend more time with your family. You might be able to exercise more. Whatever it is that you can do that's new and different is an opportunity that the change has created. So change creates opportunity. You've got me thinking about so many different things, but at the very end there, what I thought about was there are a lot of politicians out there, particularly the more conservative ones that are uh, that are subscribing to this belief that the reason why there's so much uh, em employment opportunities out there and not enough people to to fulfill those opportunities is that people are being paid by the government, and so they cut a lot of these a lot of these programs out and still we're short of a bunch of people. And the reason is because people shifted. They made that change to a different lifestyle. I'm sure a lot of them are going to come back over time, depending, but 
a lot of them have changed and they're not going to come back. I, you know, this is something I've been hammering. I've written a number of columns on, on, on Medium about this, the changing workplace. I spoke to a bunch of CEOs back in July, early August, when th their whole thinking was, we can't get anybody to come back to work, but we'll make sure that the unemployment benefits go away. And then people come back and say, no, it's just part of it. It's not, people are different. Here's a step, right? I always use this step because it's just so profound. I'm not sure how old you are. I'm older than you are. But I went back, you know, back about four years ago when the, raising the minimum wage became an issue. I did it then, and I did it as recently as two months ago. Um, I took the, the highest the minimum wage has ever been post-World War II mm -hmm. relative to the standard of living at that time. Mm -hmm. 1968, $1.65. Mm. Okay? So if you took the $1.65, and you ran it through the inflation calculator to 2021. Yeah. Twelve dollars and sixty-six cents would be the minimum wage federally. Right now, it's seven twenty-five. Yeah. Right. So it's like saying working backwards. It's like saying you know, and I I I I got paid a buck sixty-five. I thought it was great because it's between you know summers in in college, right? So oh, I'm busy. I, I can remember making that and feeling I was fine. So you know. <laughs> The equivalent now would be getting paid 88 cents an yeah. hour, right? Yeah. So I'm going to come back from work to work for that guy who used to yell at me, who I and I'd have to spend all this money and hours on a commute and put carbon in the air and for 88 cents an hour. No, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And what are they doing? They're all paying more, right? So it's kind of like I really think that what COVID has done in the United States of America is to is to initiate what may well be a decade long uh, uh, reorientation to the power of labor and employees and away from uh, owners and corporations. Well, I, I think it's healthy, it's egalitarian. And as I say, 20th century is the left brain century, 20 right cent 21st century is the right brain century. So it's more about living life as a human rather than living life as a worker bee. I certainly hope you're right about that. Honestly, I, I look forward to that. And I do too. And for the record, yeah. I'm not that far behind you. I actually, when I started my first minimum wage job as a dishwasher at International House of Pancakes, I was paid two <laughs> bucks an hour. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. And, and it, it's like, it, 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 just think about that. Yeah. Just think about that. In Florida, where I live, the minimum wage is seven eighty five. That's ridiculous. Which is five dollars yeah. less than the minimum wage in 1968. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what, what, in in what universe, in what mind frame can you be at and look at and say that's progress? Yeah. Yeah. Well, right? it's progress depending upon if you're the uh, the person that owns the restaurant versus the the yeah, but you can't get anybody else. to work. I mean, <laughs> right now I mean, you can't get anybody there, to there, work. There, yeah. There's a McDonald's near here that I don't know. I've been recently, but my stepson. Was, was going by there at 930 at night, he, he got off work and he would go in there and they were shut down because they can't get help. Wow. Right. Yeah. I mean, you go into restaurants and there's half of the restaurant shut down because yeah. they can't get the help. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Huh. What you going to do? Right. So, 
Yeah. So I, now I, the restaurants have to change their business. Now they're going much more online and pick up delivery, all the stuff that they didn't need to do. They're going to have to do if they want to stay in business. Yeah. They're going to have to increase the minimum wage. Yeah. Their minimum yeah, wage. I mean, yeah. the, I mean it, it is. What country do we call America where helping people is a bad thing, where equality is a bad thing? And so we, we have very, un, and in a, we talked about it earlier, capitalism. Capitalism has created the ultra wealthy and everybody else. And that's not the vision of the founding fathers. It's not the vision of uh, Adam Smith. Yeah. So the other thing that happens with cognitive distance in the 2020s is it's of the time, right? In other words, in, in, you know, in, in 1800, the people by definition who could vote were white male landowners. Yes. Right. So um, we were still trying to get to a more perfect union. Um, but, you know, the other interesting thing is if you look at the if you look at the Electoral College or the Senate. Globally, historically, I know this is a futurist. Uh, humanity is moving ever more to urban areas. Yeah. So. It wasn't until 2013 that more than half of humanity lived in an urban area. In the United States, in 1800, 15% of the population lived in urban areas, 15%. In 2020, it was 85%. So, so we went from a land-oriented, rural-oriented time in which the Declaration of Independence, I mean, the Constitution was written. Mm -hmm. And of course, it needs to change, right? I mean, because if 85% of the people live in the cities, the the concept of the state is much less significant than it used to be. Yeah. So, you know, and, and there's six senators in the upper Midwest that are all Republican that represent fewer people than the two senators who are Democrats in California. This is just so. So what we're experiencing, Dan, in this century, in this decade, is having to undo, redesign uh, all the old models, all the old legacy thinking. People drive down the freeway of life looking in the rearview mirror. People can tell you what they liked about the past, can people tell you where they've been, ask them where they're going, and they don't know the answer. Yeah, they're looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah, you hit upon an interesting concept there. I always thought that people in California can very easily vote three times for president. Very easily. All they have to do is move to Wyoming. Because <laughs> your vote in Wyoming is three times more valuable. I think exactly. It's, uh, yeah. it's exactly right. Yeah. You know, it's just it, it, it doesn't so, work these days. So yeah. I, and, I'm, and I'm not coming from it from a, a partisan point of view. It's just facts. Right. I mean, you know, I, I can't allow myself to be partisan when I talk about the future because, it, you know, people always say people like to think that they're an aggregation of their points of view. And I try to point out to people that a point of view is a filter through which you see the present. If you're a black man in the United States or a white man in the United States, you see it differently. If you are, you live in St. Louis, if you're a Cardinals fan, you look at baseball differently than somebody who lives in Boston does, right? right. So the point is that points of view limit our ability to truly see the present. So what I'm trying to do with these books in the 2020s is here's why it's gonna be disruptive. Here's why this cognitive dissonance, and in the book that I'm that I'm writing now, that I'm hopefully 
it's a month late coming out, the golden age of design and redesign, because basically everything that we live in, if you think about the economic structure, the social structure, the cultural structure, the government structure, was created in the last 200 years, and it obviously is no longer working. So we're going to have to redesign it, reinvent capitalism, reinvent democracy, redesign how we live on this planet, change, come up with new words. Um, so, so, you know, I could go on about this, but, no, but I, this I, is really yeah. a very, very critical historical time. We're either going to right the ship of humanity or we're not. Fork in the road time. Utopia or Oblivion. I was just going to ask you about that book, too. You're, you're writing this, this book, 2020s, what do you call it, The Golden Age of Design and the Redesign? Golden Age of Design and Redesign. Okay. Um, and it, it, I'm, I'm so excited about it because it really is how we move to the future. We have to bring design thinking. You know, mm-hmm. the engineers can't see the vision but they can construct it once they're given the vision, Yeah. right? Here's how, what it's going to look like. Here's what reality is going to be. Here's how we're going to live with technological intelligence. Here's how we're going to live on the planet. And, and so, so design has to break out of its little small ghetto. The problem with design in the past, as we're saying in this book, is one, it's usually of its time. It's not of the future. Mm-hmm. And second of all, it, it's usually in working for those that control capitalism, like yeah. a new product design, right? right. So, so um, it has to be blown up and expanded. And, you know, so it, it's, a, it's a book. I mean, obviously, the latest book that I'm writing, I think you mentioned before you started recording, is the one I'm most interested in. But, it's, you know, um, it, it, it is. Uh, the 2020s is just simply one of the most significant times to be alive in human history and i want to document it and i want to help people through it and i I like the idea of of design and redesign you speaking about it more in terms of where the government our government is going and the design the original design was obviously set down in 1787 i think it was when the constitution was signed and amended since then but it really does require a redesign. I completely agree. Like I say, you move from California to Wyoming, you triple your your value. It's um, nothing. That's that's no. That's nothing bad about Wyoming. I don't want to offend anybody out there. But the fact is that uh, it's un it's uneven. It's it's not re- it's not clearly yeah. re- it's clearly not, it's not, not a representational government. Right. And you know, when I used to be much more in the business, I'd always say the only good deal is a fair deal. Yeah. Right. So, you know, fairness, fairness needs to be brought back into the body politic. Fairness needs to be brought back into the economic reality, fairness and freedom in humanity and and honor. And that needs to be brought back in yeah. uh, because we've lost it. We've lost it in this country and we've lost it in the world. And and. Uh, you know, so this is a really critical moment. It, it's a moment where I'm really glad to be on your podcast because somebody will listen to this. And, and it's so important for people to understand that this is a multi-generational moment. When we talk about climate change, are we representing our children and our grandchildren and the unborn? Are we representing all species? Are, how are we representing, how are we figuring out the future if we're not... Um, thinking about the unborn yeah yeah right 
and 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 so everything has to change in this decade. That's what's so exciting. Yeah, I, I it is an exciting decade. It's a scary decade. I kind of glad to be alive right now to experience Absolutely. this and, and, and in some small way, take part in it through podcasts and whatever. Uh, before we wrap this up though, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Sarasota Institute. If you're uh, able to talk Thank about you. that. Sure. Um, I co-founded it in uh, 2017 with a friend of mine, Phil, uh, Phil Kotler, whose real name is the father of modern marketing. If anybody goes in and, Google's Phil Kotler, K-O-T-L-E-R, with pages and pages of Phil Kotler quotes and everything else. And he and I realized that um, Sarasota was this unique place where people retired to, came to, traveled through, disproportionate. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so we came up with the Sarasota Institute, a 21st century think tank, because we are of the 21st century. And the, the great think tanks of the 20th century are either old and have gotten you know, calcified and corporately controlled, or they're of the left or the right. And we wanted to be a nonpartisan, non-political uh, institute. We have 10 topics uh, that we think need need to be addressed relative to the future of humanity, healthcare, education, technology, climate change, natural resources, stuff like that. And, and we want to focus on framing the big questions that need to be asked and then in dialogue answering them. You know, so what is the future for humanity, the United States of America, and the Gulf Coast of Florida? And and so uh, we launched it in January 2020, and of course I had to shut it down because of COVID. So I'm right. just in the process of relaunching it. And anybody, you know, you can become a global member and and partake of everything that we do and see all our in-person symposiums that we're having here in Sarasota, Bradenton. You know, ten days later, edited. So it's sarasotainstitute.global. Um, it's my legacy project. I want to leave something of value. And I do believe that there needs to be a think tank focusing on the big issues of the future without any partisan uh, filter. Okay, that's sarasotainstitute.global, you said? Yeah, not okay. .com, .global. I mean, that's a branding thing. Okay, and that's um, that's all one word then too, just the two words. Sarasota together. Institute, right? Dot okay. Global. Sarasota Institute. Dot global. And we have great, and you know, you're as a fellow podcaster, so we have great podcasts that we've got eleven so far, and they're short, and they're like the future of education, climate change, um, fork in the road, things like that. Okay, well, I'll definitely tune in. Okay, so any other uh, thoughts about uh, about the future before we call it a day? <laughs> of course, but I just want to say that it's a it's a great time to be alive. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you really have to participate if you have any concern for the life of your children and grandchildren and the unborn, their children. And embrace change get in front of change. And I think it's a time where we're starting to move to humans sense of self outside what you do for a living, whether it becomes universal basic income and all kinds of different things. And you know, the, the technological intelligence, you know, taking over lots of jobs. So we're in this transition, we're going to have to redefine what it means to be human, what it redefines to mean to live on spaceship earth, to redefine what it means to define oneself 
without starting with what you do for a living. And those are all profound disruptions in the social, cultural, economic, and political psyches of the world. And what a great time. It's kind of like being born, right? I mean, we are being reborn. This is a transition. Any kind of disruption that any of your uh, listeners should hear should understand that it, we're moving from what was to what will be. And everybody can have a participation and a participatory role in that. I couldn't have asked for a better conclusion, actually. I, I'm just hanging on every word you said. It's like poetry. I, I love what you just said there. Uh, very, very good. Thank you. We've been, we've, we've been talking with David Hull, a futurist, thinker, keynote speaker, and with deep experience in biz, as a business advisor, entertainment industry pioneer, and prolific author. You can tune into David's website at davidhull.com, oh, correct? Is that right? That's right. And the other one that is now being updated, and we'll have the new book, is the 2020sdecade.com. That's where I have all my books. You can buy them there, quotes about them. I'll put this podcast up there. I'll put my podcast up there. So uh, okay. the 2020sdecade.com. The2020sdecade.com. Well, David, thank you for spending time with us this evening. Well, thank you so much. And, and uh, always good to talk to you. And maybe we'll talk next year uh, because something be ha something several big things will have happened by then. The decade so, rolls on. So we'll be talking absolutely. again. And, and so have a great day, great week. Um, and thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any new episodes. Each episode is packed with interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to get involved in the Alliance Party, please see our website at www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also, see our Twitter page at Alliance on Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you'll drop in for our next episode. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.